This is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We're normally on a couple hours earlier, so if this is your normal listening time and you're wondering what the heck this show is, it's a legal show, and uh, as you can tell by the title, but we take your calls, your questions, and we got experts lined up to help answer them for you, including a couple great ones here today. We're going to start our 5 o'clock hour with Patrick Dolan from Siegel and Dolan. All your employment questions that you've got. Maybe you unfortunately got laid off in the last couple of weeks. What are you entitled to? What should happen there? Maybe you're seeking out a new job and there's some steps you should take before you sign on the dotted line. Things you don't think about. There's a lot there in employment law or any other questions. You can start getting them in right now. 312-981-7200. So it'll be Patrick Dolan in the first hour. And then in the second hour, Jim McGing, a uh, former judge, joins us. A Cook County judge, well-respected. And Brendan O'Leary, who used to work in FBI political corruption here in Chicago. And... Um, Boy, I'm sure we kept him busy. (laughs) We'll answer uh, all your questions and mine, too, in Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association after this on WGN. You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association with host John Hanson. Today's show is sponsored by attorney Patrick Dolan at Siegel and Dolan and Miller and McGing. Now, here's John Hanson and Let's Get Legal. All right. Yeah, it's a 511 on this Saturday, late afternoon, early evening. Oh, and by the way, we just had our first post 5 p.m. sunset of the year. We didn't see it. (laughs) We haven't seen many of those sunsets here uh, in a while, Um, but it happened and it was after five o'clock and that marks the first time in 2023, probably the first time since the time changed in November that we've had a 5 p.m. or after sunset. And I don't know why I'm continuing to talk about this, but I just want to let you all know that in six weeks, we'll have a sunset near seven o'clock after the time changes in six weeks. So things to look forward to. This is Let's Get Legal, not a show about sunsets and sunrises, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. I got a question of the day for you. We do it most weeks if you're new to the show and uh, usually has some legal bent to it. So if you can get the answer, today's prize is pride because I gave away all the prizes during Your Money Matters this week. Uh, But here is the question of the day. Call in if you get it. Aside from the Civil War, this constitutional action has only happened once in U.S. history, and it happened to someone who signed the Constitution. So what the heck am I talking about? This constitutional action only happened once, aside from the Civil War in U.S. history, and it happened to someone who signed the Constitution. A little karma there. What the heck am I talking about? 312-981-7200 if you have any guesses. I'll welcome in Patrick Dolan from Siegel and Dolan. I already told you the answer, Patrick. Yeah, I know. It's not fair. But I did learn about the sunset time, though. Thanks, John. Yeah, no problem. Well, that makes me feel like... We're moving in the right direction. Right. Yeah. When we get over the hump in early December in terms of the sunset times, and obviously the solstice near the end of December, it just always feels like, okay... We just Here need we the go. clouds to go away so we can actually see the sunset. I was watching Skilling the other night. I don't think these stats have changed, but it was another day where it was 100% cloud cover, and I think they said we've seen about 17% of the sun that could potentially be available. That feels, feels like, right. It feels like less. Feels, exactly. Yeah. Boy, we're really sunny here at uh, 513 on WGN. Patrick, for those that don't know, what do you do? I'm an employment lawyer. I represent employees, uh, management and non-management, a whole bunch of different uh, employee-related issues um, from contract, separation agreements, employment agreements, 
non-compete issues, compensation, and then discrimination, retaliation, harassment, that kind of thing. I I can imagine a lot of people out there saying, I I can't imagine a circumstance in which I need an employment lawyer. Okay, harassment, but that doesn't apply to me. But really, a lot more people should be talking to employment lawyers in situations where they have big life changes, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you've got, whether it be a new job in a job offer and all the elements that go into that offer, compensation, benefits. Some people have equity. Some people have a non-compete. There's a lot of stuff to talk about there and uh, to try to make better on your way in because you really don't want to have to deal with it while you're there or on your way out in a separation agreement. Should people, like, retain an employment lawyer at all times or can someone call you? under specific circumstances. Yeah, it's really both. Like if they've gotten an offer and it may be an employment agreement or an offer letter, they can call me and just talk about it. So a lot of these phone calls are pretty short. And uh, I'll say, sure, let me take a look at it and let me, you know, give you my thoughts about where you might want to try to improve it. What's your employment situation? What are you trying to accomplish? And so some of these conversations are short. Some involve negotiations and terms, et cetera. Um, And then obviously there's just so many workplace related issues uh, that involve um, usually quite a bit more time. Do you work for the workers or the I do. employers? Yeah. Mo- well, most of, my, most of my clients are employees, management and non-management level employees. I do do some company side work, and I started out as a company lawyer, and that's really, I think, helped in my practice to understand what's going on. So I do both. So in your years working for the employers, did you kind of recognize some of the tricks that, I don't want to say tricks, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. Uh, strategies that they implement when they are hiring and letting people go. Yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's useful information and, you know, trying and understanding sort of what they're, what they're trying to accomplish, uh, both in terms of hiring and discipline and termination. Um, it's good, it's good knowledge to have. 312-981-7200. That's our phone number. 312-981-7200. Call in right now if you have any questions about your employment situation, issues you've dealt with. Don't name names. <laughs> That's the only rule. Keep it as generic as possible and we'll try and get They're you. They're all hypotheticals. Yes, it's hypotheticals. Or if they're really happening, that's fine, too. 312-981-7200. We can at least get the ball rolling right. on solving your issues. Then you can follow up with Patrick individually. What number do you want people to reach you at, Patrick? Uh, they can call 312-651-4851. That's my direct line. All right. That's 312-651-4851. Right. Our number is 312-981-7200. You can call to ask Patrick a question, or you can answer our question of the day. Again, aside from the Civil War, this constitutional action has only happened once in U.S. history. Happened to someone who actually signed the Constitution. What am I talking about after this on WGN? This first hour of Let's Get Legal, we got Patrick Dolan in the chair. And Patrick, we got to guess at the question of the day first. You mind if I take this sure, call? Go All for right. It. Howard wants to know, and Howard has a guess, on the only thing that's been... Well, let me read the question. Aside from the Civil War, this constitutional action has only happened once in U.S. history, and it happened to someone who signed the Constitution. Howard, what am I talking about? I'm talking about suspending habeas corpus. Ooh, suspending habeas corpus. Boy, Howard, that's a great guess. It's (laughs) not the answer, but thank you for calling. Good guess, my friend. Thank you. All right. All right. Let's go to Jim on line three. Jim, uh, good evening. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm driving back from Peoria where I'm visiting family. Oh, that's nice. How are the roads? I mean, it's not too bad to the south, right, coming up north? No, it's not bad. It didn't get bad till uh, Schaumburg on I on uh, 
355. Right. That's a common theme. Everything's always fine until you get to Schaumburg. Just kidding. I love Schaumburg. <laughs> I love Schaumburg. All right, uh, Jim, what's your guess to the question of the day? Uh, somebody was charged with treason and uh, sedition. It's a great guess. It's not quite what I'm looking for. Other people have been charged with treason and sedition since the Civil War. This person that I am talking about, that was one of the reasons for implementing this constitutional action. But it's just not quite the answer to the question of the day, Jim. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. There's a specific thing I'm looking for. This is a tough one. All right. We got Bob on the line. Bob's got a question for Patrick. Bob, how are you doing tonight? Where are you calling from? Huntley. All right. What's, what do you got for us? Okay. So I work for a company. My wife owns the company, but I don't have any ownership in the company. And I have didn't get paid all of last year because of the slowdown of COVID. I'm not getting paid right now. Can I collect unemployment? Did you used to get paid like when you when you were working for it first? Right, you have been paid in the past. Yes, yes. So, so are you a W two employee? Do you get it? Yes. Okay. So, um, you. Assuming you're eligible, then you would you should be able to get unemployment compensation. Um, there may be some confusion over how much, given your lack of income over that over that last year. But um, uh, you should you should be eligible for unemployment. So even though I still go to work every day and I don't get paid, I can collect unemployment. Are you doing that because you're you're just trying to help your wife's company not go into the red or something? Is that why you're doing unpaid work? Yes. Okay, yeah, no, you can't be working and collect unemployment, even if it's, I guess, if you, you could be a volunteer, you could consider yourself a volunteer. volunteer. Yeah, yeah. But an unpaid internship is sort of strange for your situation, and companies really don't like them. You know, the um, companies get in trouble for unpaid internships all the time. So I, um, I you're, you qualify for unemployment. Um, but you really can't be working unless you're volunteering, is I guess what I would say. So I could say, say I'm a volunteer right now until the business got better and then get off of unemployment. I, I, I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I think that's probably correct, yes. Okay. All right. You Thank know, you very much. You can always follow up and, and write this number down, Bob, uh, 312-651-4851, 312-651-4851, right? I got yeah. that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, that was a unique one. Yeah, that that is that is unusual. Um, you know, the concern, obviously, is that he's working. And so if you're eligible for unemployment, assuming... You know, you don't have your job and a uh, job, and you're trying to find paid work. Then you qualify for unemployment. But mm-hmm. um, you know, after you've been terminated. But the fact is, uh, terminated not for cause, not for conduct. In other words, mm-hmm. um, for poor performance or a lack of work or something like that. So that's an unusual situation for sure. For sure, three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred is our phone number. Layoffs are always in the news. Yeah. <laughs> we always are anticipating more of them. The jobs numbers are not reflecting it right now, but we hear it every day about, especially in tech world, maybe finance world, housing industry, about layoffs and separation agreements. That's a big topic in your office it is. now. So, right now. you know, recently Google laid off about 15,000. And so that's a lot of folks. And so Microsoft com- had a big cut too. Microsoft, right. There a number of companies have gone through large layoffs. So, um, and, you know, these companies hand out separation agreements. And sometimes they have 
very strict policies and plans about what someone should get um, that is appropriate to maybe most of their employees. But some, you know, sometimes individuals have uh, circumstances that allow them to get a better deal or should allow them to get a better deal. Um, maybe they've complained something about uh, something at work. Maybe they've been the victim of harassment or retaliation or they think it's age discrimination. There's so many different reasons why maybe they shouldn't be caught up in that group layoff mm-hmm. or if they are, that they're entitled to greater separation compensation. That's what I'm focused on right now. So you think that some people get looped into a group layoff um, unfairly so. Like that was a for sure a guide. Uh, like, all right, they're already laying off X amount of people. They're going to put some people in there that uh, maybe did experience harassment, maybe X, Y, or Z, and they're using the cover of a, a larger layoff to mask that. One hundred percent. Yes, that, I'm not saying that happens all the time, but it happens a lot. And so I have to look at the individual circumstance and say, is it appropriate that this person was included in the group, and ask a whole bunch of questions about, tell me about your individual circumstance. What's going on with you at work? Um, And they talk for a while, and oftentimes they'll say something that triggers, I'm like, ah, that is probably why the company included you in this layoff group when you really shouldn't have been, because it really is pretty good cover, because mass layoffs um, involve a whole bunch of processes that the company is supposed to go through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it just, you can just pull people in because the numbers are so big, even when they shouldn't be pulled in. Sometimes. Last time we talked, and I didn't quite realize the extra protections you get or the extra... Uh, well, the time, the, the WARN Act, if there's a large layoff mm-hmm. for companies that are bigger than 75 employees, if there's a large layoff, then you're supposed to get a 60 days notice. So you've got this sort of built in little bit of a built in buffer before the separation agreement terms even kick in, whether it be pay benefits, help with your next job, like outplacement or something like that. So let me just get this straight. Yeah. So if you're at a company of more than 75 employees yep. and they've laid off, what percentage of people? Does it matter? Two, three? It has to be, you know, it has to be a, it's not, a, it has to be a large group of people. Okay. That sort of depends on the company, but it's not strictly a percentage. Okay. But let's say that, you know, it's, a, it's clearly a group layoff, yep. right? Yep. And they say, well, we'll give you a two week severance and then you're out the door. Mm-hmm. That's not allowed? Not if it qualifies, not if the layoff qualifies under the WARN Act. So you can't just say, here's two weeks, you're gone by the hundreds. You can't do that. So the WARN Act, again, gives 60 days notice. So it allows some period of time to sort of work to those separation terms. Okay. 312-981-7200 if you have any questions. I think I have more (laughs) in my head as well about separation agreements. Um, when they tell you, you know, here's what you're going to be getting, are they following uh, what's in their employee handbook? Like, I guess what I'm wondering is, should someone, even if you feel really secure in your job, know what your rights are before you get laid off so you're ready to combat that the moment it happens? Yeah, so let's start with a couple of things. First of all, no one has the right to separation pay in Illinois. That obligation has to come from a contract, whether it be an employee agreement that you had with a company, an offer letter, something like that, or a policy of the company that says you'll get this amount of severance if we terminate you. Oftentimes, it's sort of based on years of service right. or job band or something like that. So there's, there's no like, Illinois law that says if you're fired, you're at least you have to get two weeks pay. That's, that's for sure. Absolutely. 
That's not correct. The, that is That's not correct. Okay. That's correct. Yes. There's no. And people think about this, think of this all the time. They said, oh, I got fired. I should get, you know, one, one week of, uh, two weeks of uh, pay for every year of work. That's not true at all. That's just like a rule of thumb that I guess, I don't know where it came from, frankly. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe a lot of businesses do that now. Maybe. And- yeah, maybe they do. Yeah. But it really is based on the individual policy or what the company's practice is. And so if you don't have an employment agreement that says you get severance. Specifically to you. Specifically to you. If you don't have a company policy that says, here's our severance plan. If the company has no actual practice of paying people when they leave. So even if they, could, if they regularly do it, that's a it could rise to It could rise to a, a, a right you have by contract. It's an implied right. So if a bunch of other people that you know had gotten let yep. go from that company, they got severance, you don't, you might have an argument. Yes. Yes. And you have to look closely at why did they get it and you didn't. Right. Discrimination of... Any, any sort, a whole bunch of different um, possibilities there. So you look at their individual circumstance, and there's, like, there's a lot of ways to, to argue that someone should get separation pay. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think it is a lot of people assume they're going to get it. Do companies have to let you know what their severance policies are if you ask? They sh- uh, yes, they absolutely should, okay. and, and, they, and they normally will, because honestly, they want you to know what it is, because they don't want you coming to them at time of termination or whatever and saying, hey, you know, I'm, ent- I'm entitled to a year's separation pay. And you're like, oh, actually, we have this policy, which we've never actually provided to you, that says you really get two weeks. You know, they want you to know what it is. All right. Uh, got to take a break for the sure. news, but I do want to ask you afterwards about in those separation agreements, things that they can put in there to restrict future employment or things to do that they might want to remind you, hey, you're not eligible to do this. I don't know if that's in separation agreements, but I'll find it's, out. It's all in there. Okay. okay. We'll talk about it more with Patrick Dolan. Oh, one more time. Give the phone number, Patrick. For uh, 312-651-4851. And our phone number is 312-981-7200. Let's Get Legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We're with uh, Jim McGean and Brendan O'Leary joining us in the six o'clock hour and have some great conversations there uh, mr o'leary was a state's attorney and then was an fbi special agent and then an assistant uh, agent uh, assistant special agent acting special these titles acting assistant special he worked for the fbi <laughs> that's the important thing and he did a lot of corruption stuff here in chicago so he was busy and uh, jim mcging is a legend in chicago as a cook county judge former cook county judge anyways the guest i have in front of me also a legend in the employment law oh, world wow. Thanks, yeah John. well i can't my, say my that title's about... a lot easier lawyer lawyer yeah <laughs> just a lawyer counselor there you go, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. patrick dolan from siegel and dolan we're talking about employment law but i wanted to get todd on the line who's calling from woodstock good evening todd how are you i'm good how are you good what's your question hey my daughter was laid off in december and her employer said that her position was being eliminated they offered her severance uh and then this week she was actually on friday she was talking to an ex-co-worker that still is at that company and she had indicated that they had replaced her position uh, and we're calling it, uh, uh, they had a new title for that position. So I'm just wondering if there's any follow-up action that she should or take with the employer or anything to look at on that front. Yeah, unfortunately, I have that issue um, fairly often. And the thing that I look at there is, you know, what, why was she 
let go because you know it, it sounds like a pretext frankly in other words not the real reason because the job wasn't wasn't really eliminated um the, if the job duties are still there whatever you call the title the job is still there so the question is why her was there gender discrimination did she complain about anything was she you know uh harassed at work or you know those are all the possible illegal reasons if we can't fill in an illegal reason for that action, then, you know, um, they're entitled to do that, even though it's wrong. Wrong doesn't mean it's illegal. Now, sometimes I will take that set of facts and use it for a better severance package. Um, and so it kind of depends, but there's definitely questions that need to be answered there. Was this, Todd, was this just uh, like a month ago, December, or the previous one? Uh, just a month ago, December. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there, there were actually two individuals in her group uh, hmm. that they eliminated the position on. So yeah, so even if she signed... Oh, sorry, Todd. Call. So even if she signed the agreement, it doesn't mean it's over. Okay. Um, that's right. So obviously you release your claims, right? But it, there could be some fraudulent inducement into uh, to try to get her to sign that separation agreement by saying that the job is eliminated when it's really not. Um, so there's definitely, it's not the end of the discussion simply because she signed a release. Is there, Todd, uh, and Todd, I'm following up uh, with Patrick on, on this line of questioning. Let's say it had been like six months later. It's not in this case. Is there like a window of opportunity that gets lost over time if you try and, if you realize something was fraudulent in the past? It just it just has to do with the statute of limitations for each claim. Okay. So long as it's within that statute, you're fine. Okay. So a couple of months, usually you're still in, oh, yeah, 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 still yeah, in the yeah. right there's, window. There's no statute that that's fast. So is Todd next move and him and his daughter to give you a call yeah they i'd happy i'd be happy to talk to todd and his daughter because there's definitely some questions that need to be answered all right todd you got the number or do you want me to give it to you right now uh i have the number thank you all right thank you thanks three one two i'll read it for everyone else three one two six five one four eight five one three one two six five one four eight five one yeah because sometimes it doesn't smell right but it doesn't mean it was illegal right yeah but uh that's true that's true frankly a lot of times it is illegal, right? You know, but sometimes it's just wrong. But you know why? Why did yeah. that happen? You know? And on the flip side, sometimes you may think everything was done to the letter that it should be, and in fact, it wasn't because you don't know. You don't and that's know. and that's frankly where my history representing companies helps. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're talking with Patrick Dolan. I'm going to take an answer to the question of the day. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Do you mind, Patrick? No, go for it. All right. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. Aside from the Civil War, this constitutional action only happened once in U.S. history. Actually, happened to someone who signed the Constitution. Gary, calling us from Tinley. Gary, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. What is your guess? Well, I think it was uh, when Aaron Burr, uh, the third vice president of the United States, was convicted of treason for levying war against the United States. Right, because there's other reasons to be uh, convicted of treason. But yes, Article 3, Section 3, Clause 1, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them. Was Aaron Burr the only person ever charged with that? I'm not exactly sure outside of the Civil War. But one trip up, Gary, Aaron Burr didn't sign the Constitution. Oh, son of a gun. I didn't know that off the top of my head, Gary. I saw your answer and I Googled it. So don't worry. It was a great guess. And uh, you're absolutely right about that. Have a good night, uh, Gary. Okay? Yeah, thanks, man. He thought he had it there. Yeah. I thought he did, It sounded too. good. It sounded great. I, I was actually a little worried we had two answers, right. which has happened before, yeah. which is why I always tell people when they answer to the question of the day, I'm like, that could be. It's just not the one I'm looking for. And I get to make the rules. It's 543. On, yeah, right. 542 on WGN. Let's take a break. We have more with Patrick Dolan after this. 
any employment questions you have, whether you've been let go, maybe you think something was fishy, maybe you're about to sign a job and you're wondering, is there one more thing I need to look? I've got my own questions about separation packages too. This is Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, live here on WGM. By the way, you know, we are getting a lot of great questions about employment. We're getting great questions or answers to the question of the day. Also, let us know how bad it's snowing out there. I want to keep on reporting to let people know if they're about to head out and about in the area, uh, what we're looking at in terms of snow. So 312-981-7200. You can text in, call in if you just drove somewhere and it was bad. Let me know. I want to hear about it so I can let everybody else know because weather's still a story on the weekends, even when we uh, do these great shows. Okay. Let's get another employment question in. Joe's calling from the north uh, suburbs of Wilmette. Joe, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Great. What's your question for Patrick Dolan? Well, first of all, the snow is dying down, so good. we don't need to worry too much. Hey, you got a double report for us. He's got a snow report <laughs> and a question for Patrick. All right. What, what else you got for us? All right. So my question is, I worked as a student employee at a university facility, and upon my graduation, my employment was terminated i'm wondering if since i am actively seeking employment do i qualify for unemployment until i get a job yeah you should be able to yes yep i would file uh illinois department of labor and if your termination was not the result of you resigning or any misconduct which i'm sure it wasn't uh, then you should be eligible for unemployment Okay, they answered my question. Thank you. All right, there we go. It's nice when it's that simple, too. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for calling, Joe, and for your weather report. 312-981-7200. wanted to know that the Warren Act, I think you're referencing, Mm -hmm. was it suspended during COVID? This person seems to think that maybe parts of it were. I don't know if you'd heard anything about it being suspended or for big layoffs or anything like that. Yeah, I I don't think that it was during the entire time. I think parts of it, parts of the COVID layoff, I think that is correct, but but not the entire time. Uh, 773, also a different 773, mm-hmm. wanted to know about finding unemployment. Yep. Don't you have to, uh, to be eligible, don't you have to, f- sorry, don't you have to, to be eligible to be able to be looking for another job? Mm-hmm. Do you have to be looking actively for another job while you're getting unemployment? Is that a condition yes, of unemployment? It is. I think that was in reference to the guy who was yep. going to volunteer. Yeah, you have to you have to be looking for a job. Yes. Okay, three one two nine eight one. You have actually you actually have forms to fill out when you you have to continually update them on your efforts to find a job. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So is it like Seinfeld where you have to go to the office and tell them like Costanza <laughs> trying to convince the lady? That's how I imagine it. I'm not sure it's exactly like that, but right. yeah, maybe it's online. But that's yeah, that's a better visual. All right, uh, five forty eight here on WGN. Just about okay. We were talking about separation agreements, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask. I had a question for you during one of the breaks, straining my brain to think about it. Um, I wanted. I asked about if they have to tell you what the severance package yeah. is. Oh, if you want documents about when you were hired, let's mm-hmm. say they let you go, and you're like, I swear, when I signed X, Y, yeah. or Z, I knew that. Do they have to t- procure those documents for you? Yeah. So, yeah, they have to keep them, and Ill- under the Illinois. A personnel Records Review Act. If you request the documents, and those kind of documents should be in that file, then you'll get them within seven working days. That's mm-hmm. the law. Um, oftentimes, you just have to ask. You know, you just have to ask, and they should send it. Now, the issue becomes, oftentimes, people say, I think I have a non-compete, but I can't really remember if I were or a non-disclosure agreement or a non-solicitation agreement. They can't really remember. And so I said, 
ask because right. you really need to know. Because if you're, if you're assuming you don't and you're like, well, I don't think I do, and then you, you know, that's you not get in real trouble. Yeah, that's not the way to go. Because sometimes in a separation agreement, it what reminds you, hey, that's by it. the way, you have your non disclosure agreement, and oh, by the way, your non compete is still in effect. Can they put those things in a separation agreement? So, yes, they can, but okay. if they weren't in the original offer letter or employment agreement or part of your onboarding documents at the start of your job, they can put it at the end in your separation agreement, but you need to be compensated for that. And so oftentimes people will look at the separation agreement and say, it references your restrictive covenant agreement, your non-compete, your non all these things. You're like, I don't remember that you have to find out. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you know, I can for you. What do you mean they have to compensate you for? Like the so, time in which the, the non-compete no, exists? Money, or? money. Like they, direct? They can't, yep. They can't just add a one-year non-compete, a two-year non-compete, a two-year non-solicit, meaning you can't take clients or employees from your former company. They have to provide you compensation. And what is that, that compensation? Well, it could be a lot of <laughs> whatever things. Whatever you ask for? <laughs> yes, whatever you can negotiate, that's what it okay. is. Okay. But the point is, is that they can't just put it in an agreement on the way out the door. They have to provide you compensation for that if they're going to do that. Right. And the amount is negotiable. Does every company, when we talk about separation agreements, I just picture like some people get fired or laid off and they're sent out the door, they carry that box, and away they go. Should everybody, for almost every job, be getting some sort of separation agreement or are there some you know, positions? I don't think, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, I think, I think some jobs it's really not necessary, but companies want, remember, the separation agreement has a release of claims in it. That's what the company really wants. They want you to release your claims. Meaning? But then uh, they can't, you, you can't sue them okay. for like a laundry list. It's like a page of the separation agreement, which is usually several pages long so um you know they so they want you to release your claim so the question is what do i get for this and it it really becomes sort of an individualized uh determination as to you know what happened during your employment Mm -hmm. now if they ask you that you you can't do this we're going to pay your severance for two weeks for every year you worked here Mm -hmm. but hey you can't sue us for x y and z how binding is that signature at that point it, it's binding. I mean, if you sign an agreement that has a release of claims in it, you can't sue them. They can't come to you later and say, ooh, I signed this, but I didn't feel like I should have. Unless they uh, pressured you in some weird yeah, way, Yeah, right? it's got to be, quote, involuntary. because there's And the law requires that you be given 21 days to read and consider and hire a lawyer if you want to before you sign. And can someone just call you? They've never talked with you before. They hear you on the radio. They have a separation agreement. They're in that 21 days. Mm -hmm. They can call you to at least start that conversation and chat through it, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they can give me the the outlines of their situation, um, and I can talk to them about whether it's worth pursuing. Right. I just feel like... A better deal. I feel like some people are worried about calling a lawyer because there's going to be a minimum... Not only it's not always a financial thing, but it's like, well, this isn't worth Patrick Dolan's time. Yeah, no, yeah, but people need answers to their questions. I mean, and even and a lot of people just call me and say, "Could you just look at my agreement?" I, you know, it's not going to take me a lot of time at all, and tell me what this means. Like, what do I have to do? What do I need to avoid after the job ends? What does a company give me in terms of benefits or compensation? What do I need to do to get all of that stuff? So they just want basic questions answered because it's a, a long document and there's a lot of stuff in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a text from the 847, and I'm, well, I'm taking it seriously. My daughter's boss was sitting in his underwear when she walked into her office. When she reported it, he started retaliating and bullying her. That's from the 847. 
I don't know if she has been let go from there. Let's assume not. I think that would have been included. If your boss is retaliating and bullying for something that he or she did wrong, that's no good. Yeah, so two things. First of all, that's definitely... Uh, you know, uh, that's, that's, that's definitely uh, a hostile work environment. That's, that's very strange. But also, um, you know, she, uh, she doesn't have to be terminated to have a claim for some sort of sex discrimination. If her, the, uh, the terms or conditions of her job was made worse as a result of her complaining, then that's, a, you know, that's a retaliation claim on top of a sexual harassment claim. Mm-hmm. So, so we'll need more information. Eight four seven. You can call Patrick Dolan. What number should they call you at right now? Three one two six five one four eight five one. Got a couple minutes left. Is there anything else percolating in the employment law world? Things that are coming up, popular, not popular, but things that you're seeing that people are calling about. Yeah. Well, I, you know, Illinois just passed the the uh, paid leave mm-hmm. act. Now it doesn't go into effect until January twenty twenty four, but that's. That's a big deal. And this is paid leave for anyone, right? Yeah, for anyone and actually for any reason. You don't necessarily have to be sick. And that was all sort of a loophole. You have to get a doctor's note, blah, blah, blah. They're doing away with all this. It's it's 40 hours of paid leave a year. That's either... You know, it kind of pro rata happens starting in January, like one one day per week or something like that. Or a company can give you all forty at the beginning, but that's that's a that's a big deal, and it's it's something that only a couple of states have paid leave, an obligation of paid leave. That is huge for a lot of workers who don't get any of that. Right? They're, I know. they're hourly workers. They but they might as well be full time because remember, FMLA is unpaid. The Family and Medical Leave Act that supports your ability to take leave for a whole bunch of different reasons that's unpaid in sick days are only a handful so this is this is definitely going to be a big deal i just know of so many people that work minimum wage jobs right so many hours they have no leave whatsoever yeah and five days probably isn't even enough but at least it's something to get started right oh yeah no i think it's a big deal for sure Uh, any other things you want to let people know? Who should be calling you and reaching out to you, Patrick? Well, if you need just advice and counsel, as I said, on a contract or just what's going on at work, saying, what should I do about this situation? How do I handle it? Who do I complain to? Is it something I should worry about or not? I just think there's there's a lot of confusion about, you know, of folks trying to understand what what they should be doing or worrying about at the job. So I'm always happy to talk with them about that. Or if they get a contract or an agreement, a separation agreement, or if they have a non-compete and they want to know if they can go to their next job, that's a really big deal. Right. Can they ask the, the employees that they used to work with to work with them when they leave? Right. Any questions like that, I'm happy to talk with them. And it's not always bad circumstances. Maybe they've been no. offered a job. Yeah, no, they it's exciting. They got that letter and they're so eager to say yes, yeah. but you just want to make sure you pump the brakes for a Absolutely. second. Absolutely. And there's a lot of stuff to talk about with that new Exactly because you're excited, you just want to get it going. You don't want to I, ruffle any feathers. Right, you don't. But there's certain things that, that we can talk about to make that deal even better without ruffling feathers. I know a lot of people, and good for them, that feel like they stand up for themselves at work, whether they're taking a job, whether they're leaving a job, or they're in the middle of a job. And I'm glad people feel like they have a power in their companies. That is great to have. But how much more weight does it carry to go to a boss after talking to a lawyer and saying, here's what my lawyers advised? Well, I'd like, I'd like to think it does, and I really think it does. Um, and so it's, it's how you go about that communication, I think, that makes the difference. Um, sometimes you have to be a little more political in how you present that to be effective. Mm-hmm. Remember, the whole goal is to be effective. You either want your workplace to change 
or you want a better deal when you're leaving. Right. So how do you accomplish those things? Right. You don't want to, every time you go to a new meeting, say, well, my lawyer says. That's not no, what I'm advocating. No, that's not. No, but no, no, if no, you're no, in no. a difficult situation, and you're you against a company, sometimes yeah. it helps to have you on your side. Yeah. And, and, and to just sort of walk through, here's what I think you should say to your boss or to HR. You don't don't reference me, right. but this is what I think you should do. There you go. Patrick Dolan from Siegel and Dolan, mseagallaw.com, 312-651-4851, 312-651-4851. Patrick, thanks for uh, your time. We thanks, appreciate John. it. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, it enters a second hour in just a few moments. I still do have an answer to the question of the day. Excuse me, I don't have an answer yet. Aside from the Civil War, this constitutional action has only happened once in U.S. history, and it happened to someone who actually signed the Constitution. What am I talking about? 312-981-7200. All right, coming up in the next hour, I'm very excited. i got two great guests. Jim McGing, who spent years and years as a judge here in Cook County. He's been on the program many times before. Uh, but we also have a new guest, Brendan O'Leary, who worked for the FBI for 22 years plus done a lot of great things. We'll chat about corruption in Chicago and uh, your questions, too, if you've got interesting ones coming up next on Let's Get Legal. You're listening to Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association with host John Hansen. Today's show is sponsored by attorney Patrick Dolan at Siegel and Dolan and Miller and McGing. Now, here's John Hansen and Let's Get Legal. All right. A second hour here of Let's Get Legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. If you're listening and wondering, what the heck is this show? We're normally on from 1 to 3 o'clock in the afternoons. Because of Northwestern basketball, I'll just bump back here till the uh, evenings. Got two great guests joining me at the same time. I don't know if we've had two as impressive resumes at the same time in the WGN Radio Studios on this show at the same time. Jim McGing, it's been a long time, but it's great to see you again, my friend. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us here today. Many years as supervising judge of the law division here in Cook County. Now you're with uh, Miller McGing, WGNAccidentAttorneys.com. Jim, how long were you a judge for? Uh, 13 years, uh, John. Yeah, all at Daly Center. So I had my entire career there. And anyone we ever talk to, and we mention the name Jim McGing, people say, oh, that's a great guy, that Jim McGing. Oh, that's nice to hear. <laughs> and what are you doing now, Miller and McGing? You guys do a lot of things, right? We do. Um, our, most of our focus is on personal injury, medical negligence, uh, nursing home abuse, and neglect cases. Um, but I also do a number of other cases. I assist uh, a lot of times law firms who uh, bring me in on other civil matters, uh, financial uh, and others that aren't aren't related to uh, personal injury, but our mainstay is personal injury law. When you were a judge for 13 years, were there particular types of cases you heard that other judges didn't? Is that how that works? Uh, it's very compartmentalized in Cook County, which is uh, different than throughout the state of Illinois. So we would attend a lot of uh, conferences and seminars with other judges, and uh, really their job was difficult. They might be doing criminal cases in the morning, and in the afternoon they're doing domestic relations or they're doing probate-type cases. Uh, we're in Cook County. It's so large, everything is much more compartmentalized. So the, uh, the law division is divided into commercial law. There's motions, which are pre-jury uh, uh, call, and uh, that's all. those are all tort cases, which are personal injury, medical negligence, mm-hmm. and so on. And, um, and then there's the tax and miscellaneous remedies division, which would hear um, income tax, corporate tax cases, not property tax cases, and then also did a lot of uh, replevin and um, 
uh, workers' comp appeals, those kinds of things. So very compartmentalized. So you get to become an expert in one area or several areas of the law. And do you think that translates well to what you do at Miller McGing? It does, exactly. Uh, so I was in the uh, law jury division where all those cases would go to trial. So I heard a number of medical negligence cases, every kind of accident you can think of from truck accidents, motorcycle accidents, car accidents, nursing home cases, uh, and I would preside over those as a trial judge. And that's a lot of what you do now, right? Exactly. That's exactly Medical correct. negligence, stuff yes. like that, nursing home stuff, anything like that? Correct. All I'm going to say is, if you need a lawyer who, person, who does that sort of stuff, why not get someone who is a judge in the courtroom for that? I mean, because you've seen all sides of it, right? I mean, I, I imagine you developed a compassion there and uh, a, a desire to want to help people that you would see come through your courtroom, but you know interesting tactics and skills that maybe other lawyers don't. Exactly true, John. Exactly. <laughs> you have a hard time talking you about yourself, but there you, you go. <laughs> you brought a friend along with you today. I did. Brendan O'Leary joins us now, former state's attorney, then worked in the uh, uh, worked for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, and then for the FBI. How are you doing, Brendan? Good for good to have you on today. Real good, John. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Give us a little bit about your bio. Where are you from? What'd you get into? And then how'd you end up at the FBI? Sure. So I'm from Chicago. Uh, I was born actually south south side, moved up to the northwest side when I was pretty young, and then we settled in Park Ridge when I was in middle school. Jim McGing bringing a south side guy in. I'm so surprised. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I spent a majority of my life in Park Ridge. Oh, okay. The great town go. of Park Ridge. There so you go. Went to school there, went to Maine South High School, uh, great Maine South, and then went to University of Illinois. Went to- ILL. ILL, I and I. There you go. Uh, what used to be John Marshall for law school. I clerked when I was in law school, clerked in the state's attorney's office for almost three years. And then when I graduated law school, I went to the state's attorney's office for a couple of years, worked in there, had a great time there, great experience, fantastic office, learned a ton. And then I was able to uh, fulfill a lifelong dream and become an FBI, FBI agent in uh, 1999. I think a lot of people think that if you want to become an FBI agent, you do it right out of college. But in fact, no one does. It's not how it's done. Correct. So minimum would be uh, four-year education, college education, and then usually minim- minimum of three years afterwards. Uh, advanced degrees like law degrees, uh, CPA certainly help. But I just think about the people I've worked with, some of the agents I've worked with. We've had teachers. We've had scientists. We've had, you know... Foreign military guys, we've had police, we've had a little bit of everything. We've even had a priest at one point who was an agent. <laughs> is that an avid, Is that what the FBI likes to do, is hire a, a diverse group of people from other professions? Because simply because the work that they do, you know, has tentacles into every one of those areas. Absolutely. Depends on what's hot. You know, a lot of cyber work now. Uh, certainly some certain foreign languages are very hot. But accountants, attorneys, you know, financial people... Uh, foreign military, foreign police will never go out of style. Mm-hmm. So when you join the FBI, do you say, here's the field I want to work in? Or do you take on a more generalized role at first and see which way the wind blows or where you're told which way the wind blows? And then you start to develop a specialty. How does that work? Right. So like anything else, when you first get get somewhere, uh, especially a place like the FBI, which was you know sort of paramilitary back in the day, yeah. you go where you're told and you go happily. And, and I was thrilled to have worked anything. I was lucky myself. I've pretty much worked public corruption for all of my 22 years, and that's all I ever ever wanted to work. But there are plenty of great violations. The great thing about being an agent is you can have multiple careers within your your 20 years. Right. You can work cyber. You can work corruption. You can work counterintelligence. You can work organized crime. You can work on a drug squad. So some people will bounce every three, four years, do something different, and then look back after 20 years and have worked five or six different violations and have lived almost completely different type lives, you know, white collar versus a drug squad, you know, or cyber versus a counterintelligence squad. So 
fantastic career. Uh, just great opportunity to, you know, do the best work going. And corruption's what you wanted to do. Corruption's what I always wanted to do. Would you watch the Untouchables one day and just got inspired by that? Like, I, yeah. who goes in and goes, you know, I'm going to bring the political folks down, the corruption. I mean, it's great. I'm yeah. glad you did. Yeah. What was in it from the beginning for you for I that? I mean, it was easy to me because I always felt like, and I used to give this speech to my squad, and I, I know they were tired of hearing it, but uh, the FBI is really the only group who can work public corruption, especially in this state. And I don't, and I'm not demeaning any other law enforcement agency, but the FBI's ability to do wiretaps, you know, we do informants, you can do undercover stings. We're, we're really should be the ones focused on doing corruption. And, and you would think about, and I used to tell the squad, is everybody out there in the public is counting on us. And there was only 15 agents on the squad. And I would say, you know, we can have a great time here and we had a, we had a phenomenal squad. But you think about out in the public, you think about the teachers, you think about the nurses, you think about the union workers, you think about the delivery people. You think about small business owners, they're counting on us. If we don't go out there and do our job and crush it on corruption and hold politicians accountable to the standard they should be held to, then people start to lose faith in democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what really resonated in me, and that's what resonated to our squad was we had to be fantastic. We had to dominate. There's just no other way around it. And the squad I was on are the greatest agents, the greatest people, the hardest workers, the most humble people. And they dominated. Okay, so you work in corruption in Chicago. I'm sure you've heard all the jokes. Are you the busiest squad in the entire country? No doubt. I really? Mean, I, I mean, I'm curious about yes. that. I mean, like, really, there's... Yes. That, it's not a joke. I mean, people... It is happening in it's our not, city. It's not a joke. I know my last year in the Bureau, I think our squad alone led the country in, in indictments, corruption indictments. Now, you think about that. There's several... A couple squads in each office usually mm-hmm. that work it, especially in the bigger offices like New York and... Uh, L.A. or D.C., our squad alone had more corruption indictments than any other office, field office in the country. So it is legitimate. And you think about it, too, since I came back to Chicago in, in 2004, we've indicted and convicted, of course, with obviously the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, partnership, a politician in every single level of government in this state. So we've, in, we've indicted and convicted mayors, Cook County commissioners, multiple, multiple Chicago aldermen. State reps, state senators, um, two governors, a congressman. So, I mean, you think about that. Almost every single level of government. Local, being, state, and federal. Yeah, across the board. So then is it because more corruption is happening, or you guys are better at catching them? So I think it's a, it's a little bit of both. I, I think part of the issue here is, you know, when, you, when politicians have sort of um, the ability to do consulting or lobbying, and that sort of kind of blurs the lines a little bit, I think that's, that's a big issue, right? On one hand, I, I look back on a case we had years ago, a guy by the name of Mario Moreno. He was a Cook County commissioner. And on one hand, he was lobbying. Uh, he, he's a consultant taking money in the back end to push a product while also, as a county commissioner, try to pass something that was going to benefit that company. So. Mm-hmm. Those sort of you know nebulous ties or the lobbying consulting thing I think are a problem corruption wise and that's something that always we always kept an eye on. So it could be a part about what we allow our politicians to do as side jobs. Could we do better? And this is just an opinion, I'm sure, to actually maybe designate that they are only allowed to do in this field. Maybe pay them appropriately so they are compensated at a level where they're going to not want to seek out other things. Yes, I think that. I mean, personally, I'd love to see term limits, just because I think if people get in for too long, it just becomes they just there's more opportunity. They they see it longer. They 
but definitely having a side business, I think, is a is a recipe for disaster. You see people who are, they open insurance companies, and then it becomes, well, you want to do business with our town? You have to get the insurance through, you know, through the mayor. Um, so I just think these consulting companies, these lobbying companies, pay them a little bit more and say, look, you're a, cit- you're a citizen servant. Do it for a set period of time, and that's it. But you're not allowed to make, make any outside income while you're an elected official. Well, I'm glad it's something like that, maybe, instead of just what's in the water. Because I think that's a question <laughs> that people always want to know. Why right. Why is it so corrupt in Chicago? Maybe you've hit on something that's that's important. Jim McGee, I'm sorry I'm leaving you out of the conversation. You're bringing an FBI guy. Of course, that's all I'm going to be doing, my friend. No, no. It's, all, <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. I'm just listening. Right. Well, so I, I, I want to, and maybe you both can kind of chime in here, too, with the, your, your experience on this. But... You know, you work out, you mentioned state, local, federal cases. Who calls the FBI? How does that work? Because let's say I'm a, either a, a local whistleblower or I'm someone who sees corruption happening at a local level, but I don't know how to elevate it to, to get on someone's radar. How does that work? Who calls sure. you and says, come on and help us out, FBI? That's a great question, John. Some of the biggest cases we've had over the years have come from somebody in the public fed up with something they see. They may be a small business owner who said, look, I wanted to go get you know a license or change my property, and the alderman hit me up for, for a donation or for money or said, you can do it for X amount. So a lot of our cases were from literally people in the public who would call in and say, I'm disgusted by what I see or what's going on. I don't have anywhere else to turn, and I'm calling the FBI. And we would get those, it seemed like, we'll do our best you know, to run it down. And over a period of time, too, you would get a number of complaints on the same person. And that's where you'd say, like, look, it's time to really dig in, open a case, use all the, you know, options at our disposal, you know, when it was appropriate, wiretaps, get informants, do undercover operations, look into a person's financials, do everything we can to sort of run it out for that individual who called in and do our best to sort of make a case if it was there. Judge McGing, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are. Like, let's say, you know, you're adjudicating a case, maybe not ones that you did, but for some of your uh, coworkers did as judges, and you start seeing the FBI is part of something. That must give it a lot more credence. You know it's elevated to a certain level, this case, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it would give uh, anyone great pause. Um, there, our involvement, obviously, as uh, state judges would be for state offenses, and depending where you were assigned, if you were in criminal court, um, you wouldn't, you might not have much involvement at all ever with the FBI, although except for the uh, drug uh, task force uh, membership that they're, they're a part of. Um, so that's made up of local, state, and federal uh, agents uh, from all different agencies. So they are regularly, uh, for instance, at 26th Street or in suburban courthouses in uh, in those criminal courts. Um, but the types of things that uh, that Brennan's talking about would be exclusively federal and federal court. In federal court. Right. So that's so. Does someone have to break a federal crime to get investigated by the FBI? Pretty much. Yeah, we only work federal crimes. So, but anything whether it's a bribery or something crossing state lines, or we could do a. Uh, a wire or a, a mail fraud. So there's a lot of different ways in it. And especially with corruption, there was, it was, if you were a public official and you were taking money, it was a federal offense. That is a federal offense. We, we would be able to find a way in. I was just going to say, because I often see, you know, when we tragically, and this isn't the wor- area you worked in, but we've seen horrendous murders or a serial killer operating in the state. Those are state crimes, but they say call in the FBI. Do you have to have a reason to come in and, and help investigate something like that? Uh, maybe a body was carried over a state line. Do you have to have an, a quote-unquote in to do it? Right, you would. If it was a, strictly a state crime, we would have to wait until we were asked to come in and help. Okay. Or if there was a federal nexus. 
like you said, somebody crossed the state line or there was some ev- some other federal way into the case. Sorry, I just watched Silence of the Lambs. So <laughs> great movie. It's, uh, yeah, it's on my mind. Okay, we got to take a break. We got more with uh, the great Jim McGing, and uh, of course, and any of your questions. If you have questions, I'm sure you do. Text them in so I can give our uh, great guests a little heads up before we uh, put people on the phone uh, with someone who worked in the FBI for 22 years. Brendan O'Leary, 720 WGN. Let's get legal. Powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. It's one of those shows I wish we had four hours alone with these two gentlemen, Jim McGing, former Cook County uh, judge, and also at uh, Miller and McGing, WGNAccidentAttorneys.com, and Brendan O'Leary, who spent 22 years, four months, did I get that right? Uh, yes. With the FBI. Um, and Jim, you've experienced, you were just telling me off air that you actually went out to, uh, was it Quantico, Quantico then? Yeah, Quantico, Virginia. For a little, uh, for, not a little thing, but 11 weeks, right? Yeah, yeah, almost three months. Um, the FBI has this great program for local law enforcement called the National Academy, and you apply to it, and they select so many people to go there, and you go through, you live in Quantico, you live in the FBI Academy, and you go through their training, uh, and it, w- it was extraordinary. It was a great opportunity for me, um, although I had three children under f- four years old, so I don't think my wife was quite happy at the time. <laughs> 11 when I weeks. Was, when I was gone for almost three months. You were right? probably sleeping great compared to how she was. Uh, it was wonderful. It was a mild winter. We were in northern <laughs> Virginia. I missed all the uh, snow that was here. And, and you ran on the course that Jody Foster did. Yeah, we sure did. Uh, ran on that regularly, I'll, although I will tell you that there were times I was running on that path because uh, the, the, the Quantico grounds are on the Marine base, uh, and you would look off you know, into the woods and see a Marine running with a backpack in full gear filled with rocks. So, you know, we just had our gym shoes and yeah, shorts. I, I didn't feel too bad when I saw what they were doing. Props to them. we got about 30 seconds before the news. Brendan, after the news, I want to talk to you about how you pretty much established the Las Vegas Corruption Department. They didn't really have one before you uh, got there. We can chat about that more, but you did want to say you are reading an interesting book right now, right? I am. I just got done reading a great book. It's called Water Beneath the Walls. It's the history of the Navy SEALs, pretty much how they came about, how the different organizations, you know, maybe messed up a little bit and gave him an opening. It's written by a guy, uh, Ben Milligan, who's a current FBI agent, former SEAL, who's a great guy, and it's a fantastic read. So if anybody's a history buff or they like you know, the Navy SEALs and who doesn't, it's a fantastic book, and I highly recommend it. Water Beneath the Walls? Water Beneath the Walls. And the author's name again? Ben Milligan. Ben Milligan. I'm writing this down because I am a history buff and want to learn that. All right, so John Hanson, and let's get legal powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. We've got Jim McGing from Miller & McGing, a longtime Cook County judge, and Brendan O'Leary, formerly uh, state's attorney's office and uh, was in the FBI then for 22 years. A great conversation between uh, these two gentlemen, and uh, I'm just here asking a bunch of dumb questions. Uh, <laughs> Brendan, I wanted to ask you, before we talk about Las Vegas, just exactly how it works, what your relationship is with the state's attorney's office, because the FBI can only do so much investigation, investigating by themselves. There's times when you need someone to go into court and argue for you on your behalf to dig a little deeper. Am I reading that correctly? Well, we we generally work in partnership with the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. They've got some great assistant U.S. attorneys. This guy, Amr Bachu, who is a public corruption guru, has done phenomenal work over there. Uh, They've had some, you know, John Lausch has set up a great public corruption program. So they've been fantastic. I think, though, there's a little bit of a sleeping giant in Cook County, and this Cook County State's Attorney's Office they should be doing corruption because they have the means. They're probably the only other entity that is situated to do it. 
And what uh, do you mean by that? Why do they have it versus other places? Sure. Don't? Is it funding? Is it the, that the crimes are happening and, and they should know it? Or they actually have the manpower or woman power to do it? Right. Well, I think a, a perfect example is like the attorney general's office. Kwame Raul, I think, is an outstanding attorney general. I think he's you know against corruption and love to fight it. I think he's hamstrung a little bit because they don't have their own grand jury. And I think that, you know, my opinion was probably set up that way on purpose. And in layman's terms, what does that mean to have your own grand jury? Well, that's where you can go in and you can get subpoenas. You can put witnesses in front of, you know, that's how you build your case. So unlike the attorney general, you have the Cook County State's Attorney's Office who does have their own grand jury and should be working corruption, quite frankly, because obviously there's plenty of it to go around. Like we talked about before, there's been somebody indicted and convicted in every level of government since I've, I've been in Chicago. And I think it's something where the Cook County State Attorney's Office should focus or should, and I understand they've got violent crime to mm-hmm. worry about, but a different segment should be focusing on public corruption, focusing on corrupt politicians. They have, a, uh, they have their own investigators. They have a grand jury. If nothing else, they could be helping federally taking cases that, you know, maybe there's an overflow uh, at the federal level, but they should also be working state-level corruption uh, and should take a bigger role in it because it's obviously very prevalent and it's something that's needed. Is that something that we as taxpayers need to maybe swallow a pill and say we need to give more resources to this Cook County State's Attorney's Office to be able to do this? I think it needs to be a focus in the office. I know they have you know integrity sections, and um, but, but the problem is I can't think of the last time the State's Attorney's Office has had a, a corruption conviction, a notable one, and it's probably going back till 25, 30 years to maybe Mel Reynolds. And that would be unusual for a, a, a state's attorney's office of that size in a city of this, in a county that big. I mean, to me, it is. I think it's, it's a very you know, fertile field, and I think it's something where resources should be put into. I think it's something that they could work, and I think it would be great for the taxpayers and the people in Cook County to have them working it. Are there states that you think stand out and do a good job at fighting corruption? I mean, there's a lot of states that do well. I think New York does well. I mean, but they've got, again, a lot of it is their attorney generals have the ability to go in with grand juries and investigate. And I think is, that, that is, a con- is that a state constitutional thing or is that a decision of the governor's office? No, I think that's written in the uh, state rules, right? That yeah, probably. Right. It would, it would need a legislative change from the Illinois General Assembly. Uh, it would also need to include uh, a change in the law, for instance, on eavesdropping, which is very strict in Illinois. You can only utilize it in very uh, limited circumstances and uh, in cases such as drug trafficking or um, uh, sexual trafficking. And then it's even limited even more when it can be introduced in court. Uh, it's not like that in other states. So uh, other states, their, pros- their local prosecutors have uh, laws that they can actually utilize to investigate public corruption. So I just want to understand what we're saying here, that if we could legislatively conv- convince our legislators, that was a mouthful, to change the laws to allow the Illinois Attorney General the power to call his or her own grand jury that would have subpoena power, that could be a solid check on corruption at a state level, which is something that the FBI really can't dive into too deeply because it has to be a federal crime. Well, I just think it would, it would help fighting corruption. Uh, it would give you know Attorney General Raul's office the ability to fight it, which currently they don't have. They, ask, they have to ask other states' attorneys' offices if they can borrow their grand jury. Now, think about that. I mean, it's the Attorney General for the state of Illinois. To me, they should have their own grand jury, their ability to go in and fight corruption themselves, 
and be a partner with the FBI and other entities who are working it. Because once you call a grand jury, I think you mentioned this, you have the power then to subpoena witnesses, to bring them in front of a grand jury. And then what a grand jury looks for a preponderance of evidence that some a crime may have occurred and make recommendations then to a, a prosecutor. Right. Correct? They would return an indictment. It could also give the ability to get you know bank records, phone records, things that you use as building blocks to make a case. And Jim, you're suggesting that some of the laws about eavesdropping they don't have the clause that perhaps other state have to be able to dive deeper into some of these cases. Absolutely. Okay. Boy, I swallowed that pretty good. All right, there we go. And I'm, I'm trying to learn, just like our listeners, who have great, great questions on the line as well. Try to get to some of those before the end of the program. Uh, you were out in Las Vegas, Brendan. I was. And that's another area I would think, oh, boy, corruption. I saw the movie Casino. Great movie, by the way. They didn't have a corruption division out there? They did not. When I got there in 1999, there was no corruption program, no corruption division. I was on a white-collar squad, and uh, we had a great agent out there, a legendary agent named Joe Dickey, and he came to me. I was about a year and a half in. Joe only had about another year ahead of me. And he said, we have information that a strip club owner every Friday is paying four politicians out his back door. And we said, I, I, that's crazy. No way, right? And Joe goes, well, I went there last Friday in a covert vehicle, and I saw it. So I talked to the boss. We're standing up a corruption squad. You want to be on it? And I loved it. I thought it was a great opportunity. It was the craziest case I ever worked. <laughs> uh, one, I barely knew what I was doing, so we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Take but it until you make it, yeah. It was a, uh, a strip club owner who was bribing uh, politicians. He was using a former politician as a middleman, and he was bribing three or four other politicians to have them vote in his favor on certain ordinances, whether it was to zone out other competition or to change sort of no-touch laws. But we had wiretaps up for 18 months on four or five lines. We ended up doing raids on a strip club while it was open, uh, we crazy informants. It was, it was the wildest, nuttiest case, but a ton of fun, learned a lot. Uh, at the end of the day, we had, you know, we, we died and convicted four people for sitting uh, politicians in Vegas, which was the first time in 20 years anybody had been convicted there. So so if you remember a time in Vegas, you were enjoying a moment at the strip club and it got raided by the FBI. Uh, this is the guy who did it. Now, uh, Brendan, I wanted to ask because you say that this guy saw in the back someone doing this, right, giving money. And I think that speaks to, well, okay, arrest him, bring him in. What What's the problem? And you talk about an 18-month investigation to essentially get to that point. Why can't if I see someone giving money to a politician, why, who, why am I not arresting that person right away, bringing them in? What are the complications in that? Sure, that's a great question, John. I mean, you got to take the long view, right? If you jump out and arrest somebody right then, they could say, I'm paying him back because I owed him money. Right. You have no proof. Plus, our, our view was, we know what's going on. Let's do it the right way. Let's, let's take our time. Let's get the wiretaps up. Let's work to get informants on the inside. Let's learn everything. So when we do take it down... We're going to crush them all, and you know we're going to have all the evidence needed to get a people indicted, people cooperating, and everybody convicted, which is what happened. Could it also be that you, if you see cash exchanged hands between a strip club owner and a politician, well, maybe this were maybe this is just one part of this, a bigger operation, perhaps. You want to get a, a sense of the grand scope of what could be happening. Absolutely, you want to get everybody. You don't want to just get one, and you want to be able to have it stand up in court again. You know, they could just say, "Hey, I owed him money," or it was for something else. We, we couldn't prove differently. Right. Because at the end of the day, this is going to go someone or some group of people in front of a jury of their peers, right? Correct. And you need all 12. We need everybody. And I imagine that in your courtroom, Jim, and uh, other colleagues as well, 
I'm sure there's been plenty of cases where it, it, it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, but it doesn't meet the standard of beyond reasonable doubt, does it? Absolutely. Yeah. That's why, um, you know, their investigations uh, following every lead, there could be people involved who aren't physically located there even. They might be partaking in the conspiracy or in the uh, public corruption, but they're not actually physically present. And the only way to figure out everyone involved is through that long-term investigation. For sure. And I think, Brendan, it speaks to a point that a lot of Chicagoans, a lot of people in Illinois, they go, well, my goodness, we cannot just stop this corruption. I I know my alderman's done this, that, or the other thing, or I've heard of this, and oh, we've been talking about it forever, and this politician, that politician. Just because there's a lot of people talking about it does not mean it has risen to a standard that it is a criminal or you guys feel confident that you could bring someone in and get them found guilty in front of a jury of their peers, correct? Absolutely. So, you know, we don't open cases based on rumors. We don't open cases based on people calling in just upset about something. You've got to have you got to have a, a certain amount of evidence to open a case. You know, we understand also politicians have a tough job as far as, you know, if something goes uh not their way. Someone's going to be upset with them. So, look, we want to be fair. We want to get to the truth. That's that's what matters. We want to do the right thing. Uh, and over the course of an investigation, generally, you're going to find it out. And we've had investigations we've opened, and they haven't risen to the level, or the person wasn't doing something that you thought they were. And in a way, you feel good that they're not corrupt, and that's an honest politician. You close the case, and you move on. So... If you've built a case, and you like have this book, or these books, or these this evidence, right... What do you do with it? Because it's not like you can, you know, uh, you're, you don't argue the cases in court, right? Like, how does that work? What, is, what happens then? You you hand it over to someone and say, do something about this? Sure. So you get, you get the evidence. You've got to take it. The chain of custody is very important. You have to make sure it gets put in the right spot to where, you know, it hasn't been interfered with. Uh, we work, like I said, hand in hand with the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, we would eventually go over there, bring the evidence over. They would see it. I mean, we we would be on the phone with the U.S. attorneys daily on corruption cases. Uh, so they know what's happening as the investigation is going on? Okay. Any good corruption agent is working hand-in-hand hand with the U.S. attorney's office. So you don't just spring it on that person one day? No. The worst thing you can do is work a case up for six months, go to the U.S. attorney's office, give it to them, and they're like, if you had done something four months ago, if you went left instead of right, we could have made the case, but you blew it. We can't. So right from the beginning, when you open a case, when you get a grand jury number, you get an assistant United States attorney assigned. You're working with them hand in hand, and it becomes a partnership. You got to work with them, and you got to figure it out. And that's one thing that helped when I was in state's attorney's office is I could see it from the prosecutor's point of view. When I was a state's attorney, I had a good friend of mine, Pat Brosnan, went to law school with him. We were prosecutors together. We were FBI agents together, and we would talk about it. We would see the different angle where you know sometimes as an agent, You'd say, I can't believe this doesn't get prosecuted. What's the problem? Well, you could see the holes in the case being a former prosecutor. You can see where the defenses were going to be. You could see what you need to shore up. So that's why having a legal background was very important. But it also is, it goes to, you've got to work hand in hand with the United States Attorney's Office to make the cases. Because ultimately they have discretion in that case, right? 100%. Well, you say all the time, the toughest thing for me is we could take that case 99 yards and get it to the one yard line. We were not the ones who charged it. It was the assistant United States attorney. So again, people like Amar Bachu and uh, Diane MacArthur and you know Chris Stetler, people who were great AUSAs, great corruption AUSAs. 
we needed them to sort of carry the ball uh, over the goal line, and they did more often than not. All right, this is fascinating stuff. We'll have a few more minutes here with Jim McGing and Brendan O'Leary. Get your questions in. Got a couple on the text line I'll prep these guys for after this on WGN. 720 WGN, let's get legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. 708 says, awesome show tonight. Very uh, interesting to learn some insights into the FBI. I agree. Jim McGing and Brendan O'Leary with me now. Jim spent uh, 20-some years in the FBI Jim, we had an interesting question about the different response. Brendan. Oh, Brendan, Brendan excuse me. Did. Brendan did. Jim was a Cook County judge. <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, different responsibilities exist between the Treasury Department, the FBI, when it comes to organized crime. And this is from Bill and Mokina. And I think that he's bringing up a broader thing, too, is that the FBI is part of the D- Department of Justice. But other departments get involved in big cases, too, right? Like the IRS can, and there's got to be a lot of communications between departments, right? Absolutely. We would work routinely with the IRS, Department of Labor, Postal, other federal agencies that could help out. I mean, they can just offer, you know, different things to help help on a case. IRS, obviously, with tax records and, you know, Postal could look into things and labor. So it was always a big help. You work as a team. Uh, obviously, as a team, it's the best way to get things done. Right. And, Jim, you mentioned something which I've already forgotten <laughs> during the break about international and, and going sure. out that yeah, way. The, the Treasury Department has a unit called the Office of Foreign Asset Control, known as OFAC. And every time you see in the news that somebody's sanctioned, whether it's North Korea, whether it's some con- cartel leaders, uh, perhaps uh, in the drug industry, uh, those people are sanctioned by OFAC. So that means that anyone doing business with them or any type of financial involvement at all, uh, that those monies can be uh, frozen, and uh, banks will actually uh, freeze those accounts. And so that's a, another way of approaching uh, public corruption, because there are a number of people uh, named uh, from throughout the world due to their public corruption that are on those lists. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another role with the Treasury Department. For sure. I actually have a question. This is a good one from the A47 for Brendan. The idea being is, don't these people know they're going to get caught? I'm sure it's hubris. I'm sure it's they think they're smarter or maybe they are just so greedy that it just blinds them. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's interesting. Um, you know, when you have a case on somebody, and especially if you're on a wiretap or you're looking through records, you really kind of get to know them a little bit. And a lot of times it is that sort of hubris. Hubris, I have a hard time saying that word. Hubris, hubris I think. Thank I don't you. even yeah. know. No, yep. don't take my word for yep. it. So, and, and when you do end up arresting them and you sort of see, you know, their, their face, the, just the color go out of it, I think it's a surprise that they've been caught. Like they almost think they're completely above the law. And a lot of it is if you're in those positions, people are always coming to you. I need this. I need that. They're treating you like, you know, royalty basically. And they're always, you know, around and complimenting and doing whatever. And I just think it's sort of a, they don't think the ones who are corrupt don't think they're going to get caught. They think they've probably been doing a long time. And it's like I said, it's a slippery slope and it just keeps going. Are long prison sentences a great deterrence? Or can they be unfairly too long? They are a great deterrent to me. So um, I look back on, we had a couple of corrupt individuals who got 11 and 14 year sentences. And I thought it was a great message. One, it's a great message to the public. And also it's it's great for that person because they deserve it. They've been, as we talked about before, destroying the public trust. I mean, politicians need to be accountable for their actions. They need to be doing an honest job. And it's extremely important. The regular people on the street count on them. And again, we lose faith in democracy if they're not. And it also reminds me, we had a there was a sentencing this week, somebody who was in the uh, assessor's office taking forty three thousand dollars worth of bribes to change uh, the change appeals basically on your uh, property tax. The judge gave him three months. 
three months in jail. I mean, it's just, it's disgusting to me. Mm -hmm. So it's very important, uh, not only because of how hard people work on the cases, but it's very important for the public to see that if you're going to do that, if you're going to take those bribes on on tape, that you're going to be held accountable. So again, the judges have discretion. They can do what they want, but I believe long prison sentences are a major deterrent not only for the public, but for other politicians, too. And you're not with the FBI now, but shout out to the office that's still doing the important work, I imagine. Oh, they're, they're the best. I, I miss the squad. They're the greatest, most humble people, the hardest working, uh, just true believers who are doing something bigger than themselves every day. Jim? I'm, I'm not defending that sentence, but I am going to defend judges because, um, you know, they are have a different role. They're hearing all of the evidence. They're hearing someone's background and everything. Um, so... That, that's my shot to defend judges in general. Thank there you. you. <laughs> there you go. Jim, people can reach you at WGNAccidentAttorneys.com. Uh, what should people be calling you for? Any personal injury accident, uh, medical negligence, um, nursing home abuse or neglect, uh, please give me a call. You can call me uh, anytime at 773-467-8000. Guys, this has been great. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. That's going to do it for Let's Get Legal on WGN.